This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we discuss the climate crisis, why it's a difficult knowledge to humans to grasp, and how art can help us transform approaches to teaching about it. My guest is Audrey Bryan. Many of the effects of climate change are being more acutely felt in recent years, and it's more palpable. And we now have phenomena such as eco-anxiety. We don't quite yet know how to make sense of or deal with its psychological impact because it's such a new phenomenon. And furthermore, its effects are often under-acknowledged or not even spoken about. Audrey Bryan is an associate professor of sociology in the School of Human Development at Dublin City University. Her new article is Pedagogy of the Implicated, Advancing a Social Ecology of Responsibility Framework to Promote Deeper Understanding of the Climate Crisis, which was published in Pedagogy, Culture, and Society. Audrey Bryan, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. So can you tell me why the issue of climate change is considered a difficult knowledge? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think the most obvious reason is that the scale of the threat posed by global warming is so enormous that it's cognitively very difficult to comprehend or to get our heads around. We might know on some level that the ice is melting at an alarming rate in the Arctic and Antarctic circles. We might know that this, you know, has the potential to spark uh, catastrophic ecological tipping points. But the enormity and gravity of it all makes it extremely difficult to accept this as probable or even possible. So because many of us don't want to know that these things are happening, we turn away from the reality of what we're faced with. So humans have this incredible capacity for disavowal, which is the ability to at once know something and not know it at the same time. And whereas, I mean, many of the effects of climate change are being more acutely felt in recent years, and it's more palpable, and we now have phenomena such as eco-anxiety, we don't quite yet know how to make sense of or deal with its psychological impact because it's such a new phenomenon. And furthermore, its effects are often under-acknowledged or not even spoken about. So I think this is one of the main reasons why it constitutes such a difficult form of knowledge. The other issue then has to do with how we're positioned in relation to the climate crisis. So all of us, by by virtue of being human beings on planet Earth are at once vulnerable to as well as culpable for the climate crisis. Now, you know, that's very much a matter of degree, depending on where we're located and what the size of our carbon footprint is, for example. However, it's this kind of combination between vulnerability and culpability that makes climate change such a difficult form of knowledge. So, you know, many scholars are now characterizing the climate crisis as a form of eco-trauma to capture, I suppose, the complexity of our positioning within this crisis. And it's the idea that the damage and the harm that many of us, particularly those of us in the global north uh, who are living in emissions intensive societies, the harm that we are inflicting on the natural environment is essentially coming back to 
haunt us, you know, in the form of ecotrauma. The idea that all of us living in emissions intensive societies bear at least some responsibility for the climate crisis was kind of the starting point for the article. And it's this, this notion that we can't escape our own implication or complex entanglement in the crisis. And this can often spark, you know, fairly difficult and painful emotions. So it's difficult in that sense as well. I'm trying to reflect on this difficult knowledge as you very clearly sort of begin to articulate it vis-a-vis climate change and trying to reflect on my own sort of self here. You know, I have family in Australia. I would love to go and fly and go to Australia. And so on the one hand, I can do that. I can buy the ticket and go to Australia. But of course, that emits a lot of carbon and contributes to this climate change. And I also, at the same exact time in my head, I have seen the devastating floods in Australia, which are most likely connected to some extent to climate change. And and these two realities, you know, it's sort of like I am culpable, but I'm also, I guess, a bit in denial because I'd like to go to Australia and see my family. The concept of normalized denial is probably one of the best ways to capture that internal tension and conflict that you speak to. So on the one one hand, you know, we have this conscious awareness that our individual actions are consequential in terms of causing harm and suffering to others. But it's very easy to kind of negate or ignore that reality when we have to, I suppose, justify our uh, perpetuation of those harmful practices. So I like this notion of normalized denial because I suppose it makes very real the reality that ordinary everyday practices that we engage in that are, you know, socially sanctioned, many of them are, you know, expectations or requirements even could be something as simple as eating meat, you know, going on a vacation or a holiday, uh, driving a car, that these, you know, whereas in and of themselves, they're not that consequential, but in the aggregate, you know, and that their cumulative impact is indeed highly consequential. So the idea of normalized denial and grappling with the consequences of that, I think is a helpful way to think about these tensions and conflicts that we experience in relation to the climate crisis. How do we overcome some of this normalized denial? Because obviously, you know, it seems like there's a struggle between simply blaming individuals for doing, you know, as you said, individual practices, which in of themselves don't seem that consequential, but are embedded within this large system and social structures that are causing tremendous harm and problems worldwide and unevenly. And those who are probably contributing more to the problem are feeling less of its effects. How do we begin working through these tensions between the individual and the sort of larger social structure vis-a-vis this difficult knowledge of climate change. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's straightforward. You know, I suppose this is kind of the impetus for the article kind of derived from a frustration that I myself have experienced, you know, either listening to or participating in debates within climate action and within education where, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are sort of privileging this very individualistic narrative and, you know, highlighting the need for individual transformation 
And then on the other hand, you have people who are sort of saying it's all about the ideologies, the structures, the, the kind of easily identifiable bad guys, you know. And I think that's completely understandable, you know, when you think of global corporations like Shell or Exxon. They're very much in the public eye. Just for example, I think just yesterday it was in Massachusetts, it was announced that a legal challenge is being taken against Exxon, I think it is, for deliberately misleading the public. Those kind of global multinational, those carbon major companies are very much in the public eye. We're, we're very aware of disasters such as the Deepwater Horizon disaster in back in 2010. I suppose it's so visible, the damage and the havoc that they wreak, the environmental destruction is so palpable because we can see it on our television screens and we see that there is this, you know, there's this easily identifiable culprit. And ultimately there are, you know, the research evidence suggests that there are a finite number of major entities, you know, companies, governments who are responsible for a majority of of the CO2 emissions and that that has happened, you know, within a very short space of time. So on the one hand, we have these easily identifiable culprits. And then on the other hand, we have, you know, ourselves. It's very hard to kind of disarticulate our individual practices from those larger structures that within which we're embedded, as, as you have said. So it isn't straightforward, I think, in terms of looking at the linkages, but that was really my rationale for writing writing this article because I didn't find that the debate is a particularly productive one. It tends to be highly polarized, you know. So I wanted to look at the interrelatedness of these different scales or dimensions. And the, the argument often quickly descends into, you know, well, on the one hand, you have people who are saying, well, if we privilege individual actions, that's necessarily at the expense of really interrogating interrogating broader structural ideological factors that are at play. So for me, it was about, I suppose, looking more holistically at the problem and looking at how everything is interrelated. So with that in mind, I tried to devise a conceptual framework that places the individual kind of at the heart of a much broader, I suppose, macro system. Is this what you call the implicated subject? Yeah, well, I, I draw quite heavily on the work of Michael Rothberg, who's a Holocaust and memory scholar, uh, memory studies scholar in the US. And he devised this conceptual framework of the implicated subject. He uses it primarily in the context of looking at racism within the US. So I have drawn on that framework um, and I have found it very helpful. It's a really useful tool or way of thinking about individual's own complex involvement or complicity uh, in larger systems and structures of injustice. So he kind of delineates between, you know, more direct forms of implication. So he talks about historical forms of implication as well as more contemporary forms. And he also delineates between more direct forms of implication and then more indirect. So a more direct, an example of, an, of a more direct form of implication would be 
uh, if I was, let's say, the descendant of a slave owner. Okay, so he talks about genealogical implication. And then he also talks about structural implication. So that kind of pertains to where I'm located or positioned within the social structure. So for example, if I'm, you know, white, middle class, I have various advantages or I'm a beneficiary of a larger class-based, racialized, hierarchical social system. And it's about getting us to think about our responsibility, our kind of ethical and political responsibility within systems that are stratified along race, racial lines, gender lines, ability lines, and so on. How does that connect then to the climate crisis? Like if we think of the implicated subject and this these these social hierarchies, you know, how does that help us think through this difficult knowledge of the, the climate crisis? So part of it is about by placing the implicated subject at the center of this wider system. It's about being able to see, you know, some our role in uh, as a perpetuator of climate related harm and climate related injustices. So it allows us to see the ways in which by virtue of the ordinary everyday harms that were that we're involved in, you know, the examples I gave earlier, how our involvement in those harms positions us as perpetuators of climate-related injustices. So we're not just, I'm referring here, I suppose, to people who are based in emissions-intensive societies. So we're not just beneficiaries of consumer capitalist society. We're also perpetuators of harms through actions and, you know, our participation or our conformity to social norms. It could be in terms of the blind eye that we turn when our, to our governments, when they endorse harmful practices, when they fail to take appropriate climate actions and so on and so forth. So it's, it's about the actions that we take. It's about the behaviors that we're involved in, but also that our, our failure to act. Uh, or our failure to hold government officials to account when they themselves fail to act or engage in devised policies that allow these so-called, you know, dirty industries or carbon majors, you know, to continue to wreak environmental havoc. One of the issues that you bring up in the article is sort of this problem of intelligibility. It's just very difficult to represent in any sort of understandable way issues around climate change and the climate crisis and the framework helps us begin to get a sense of our own sort of connection to it within these larger institutions and structures and social hierarchies but in terms of this issue of you know representation you point to art as a potential way to sort of overcome some of these problems of intelligibility. Can you explain how art may help us in understanding issues around climate change a little bit more easily? One of the difficulties of the climate crisis is that it has this kind of intangible quality to it. So its effects are often invisible, they're ongoing. It's often described as a form of slow violence. So Rob Nixon, you know, coined this phrase slow violence to talk about the imperceptibility of climate change and to address the challenges of apprehension associated with it. So it's a problem of intelligibility in that sense, because people find it so difficult to fully understand the causal connections between their own actions in one part of the world and the harm that this can cause elsewhere. 
But for me, I suppose art serves as a really valuable, it's a critical tool in the sense that it's one of the few tools that we have that enables us, that kind of combines cognition, criticality and and affect simultaneously. So uh, because the climate crisis can be so emotionally charged and because it's so affecting, I think we need visual tools, not least to kind of enable us to make the inexpressible expressible, to make the invisible more visible, but also to equip us with stimuli or to serve as a springboard through which to really interrogate the more affective dimensions of this crisis. So I think for me, art is one of those realms where it it enables us, you know, whereas science is very good at capturing what is, you know, and documenting the way things are. With something like something as that constitutes such an existential crisis, we, we need tools that will enable us to think otherwise or to imagine things otherwise. And, and art has that freedom, I think, and it, it allows, it's that kind of expansiveness. It allows us to go there. So it's, it's a really valuable tool in that regard. And, you know, now we have a, I suppose, an emerging genre of climate change art and of climate change literature. And I think, you know, as educators who are interested in teaching about the climate crisis, there are, you know, increasingly resources out there, whether it's literature, whether it's film, whether it's art installations that we can draw upon to, I suppose, try to give more tangible form to this otherwise very abstract and unknowable phenomenon. It's interesting to use the word abstract because at the same time, you know, I mean, listeners won't be able to see this, but we're talking on a Zoom call and behind you on the wall is a a print of Sonia Delaney's abstract work. And it's quite beautiful and does invoke certain emotions and feelings when I even look at it through the screen here. And in a way, it makes me think with art and around climate change art, for instance, if that's a theme of, you know, art now, even though it's supposed to try and help us understand this really abstract concept of climate change, perhaps abstract art can actually help us with that in a weird way, right? It doesn't have to be literal representations of climate change as art, but it actually can sort of embrace abstraction to evoke a particular affect. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, I think one of the, you know, when I started to delve into what artistic resources are there, it did sort of evoke for me questions around like some some of the artworks that I looked at. So one of the kind of key genres is this kind of ice related art. So there's a lot of art installations where you can actually get up close and personal with melting ice. You can embrace the melting ice. You can mourn the melting ice. And it did get me thinking, you know, what are the most effective, like effective as well as well as affective forms of climate art. And, you know, some of it I found has the tendency to overwhelm or to rather kind of distance us rather than animate us, you know. So I, I think it, it depends. I mean, there's one piece that I really like, which is it's called Pyramid of Garbage. And it's an art installation that has been created by an artist, Bahia Shahab in Cairo. And the reason why I really like that is because 
because it really invites us to think of ourselves as agents in this crisis. So um, rather than, you know, some artworks, which I think have the potential to, to sort of disempower rather than empower us, this piece by Bahir Shahab, which is kind of juxtaposed with, you know, incredible great pyramids of Giza, really forces us to reflect, critically self-reflect on um, our own engagement with the crisis and invites us to see ourselves as agents with the capacity to ameliorate and to imagine a radically different future and set of ideologies that guide and drive us. So for me, that's a very empowering set of images. And maybe some of the abstract work that you allude to there has that capacity because it really speaks to imagination. It speaks to this notion of things being otherwise. It speaks to the notion of potential rather than closing things down and maybe shutting us off from those possibilities. It's a really interesting sort of entry point into thinking about, as you said in the beginning, this difficult knowledge that sort of has normalized denial built in and people try and resist it and not think too much about it and, and sort of go on with their daily lives. And art can sort of disrupt that and open new possibilities, new worlds, emotions, feelings, you know, you name it, tangential thinking. So how then does that actually get brought into classrooms, get taught? How does it impact sort of the word you use in the article is the teachability of climate change? How do we see this connection with art and climate to teaching and learning? I think its value lies in the ability to kind of document what is otherwise invisible, intangible. So for example, we now have this kind of emerging phenomenon of glacier funerals, you know, so there's these attempts to make what's intangible more tangible. And for me, whether it's uh, specific climate-related artworks, whether it's literature that addresses the climate crisis, whether it's film, it can even be approached in a very playful way in the classroom. So a lot of the work that I do in my kind of teaching role, uh, I work with teachers who are preparing to become primary school teachers, and many of them work, you know, with very young children, children as young as four years of age. So I'm frequently confronted with this question and grapple with it myself, you know, in terms of, well, to what extent is it appropriate to be engaging very young children with the trauma that is climate change? And I think it's a very reasonable question, but there are these kind of dominant sort of discourses that I think cloud kind of productive engagement with that, whether that's sort of a discourse around, well, you know, is it developmentally appropriate to be exposing very young children to such, you know, uh, challenging and traumatic forms of knowledge. And that sort of tends to sit alongside a discourse of childhood innocence. And yet, we think about how children, even very young children, are immersed in a very hyper-consumerist world. We kind of have to think more critically about that narrative of innocence, you know. So for me, one of the key ways into that is to do it playfully. So it's almost like a, a sort of a, a slantwise engagement, if you will, 
with these very difficult forms of knowledge. And there are resources out there. One of them that I like to use is a film that's like a Disney Pixar film that's probably about 10 years old now, but it's called Wally. And it's like a wonderful engagement with, you know, hyper consumerism and our role in basically destroying the planet. In Wally, isn't there like landscapes of used electronics? And Wally is a character that is like a robot or something and he's sort of wandering it's silent too or there's very little dialogue very little dialogue and he's tasked with basically cleaning up all of this garbage and that's that's kind of his entire existence but it's done in a very playful way and in a way that is appropriate i have five-year-old twins and i showed them you know, certain clips from the movie and, you know, they were really taken by it. So the idea is that these resources can serve as springboards for these complicated conversations that we need to have, but that they also, I suppose, open up the affective realm. Because I suppose one of the things I think is most important in this situation is to allow space for emotion to to come into the classroom. So, you know, we tend to have, I think emotion is something that tends to be marginalized or, you know, within education and certainly within mainstream educational research, uh, it tends to be viewed as, you know, irrelevant, very much so unless it's, you know, a very prescriptive understanding of emotion, you know, in terms of emotional regulation, you know, so there's this whole kind of move now towards social and emotional learning. But I just don't think that that does justice to the complexity of the emotions that we experience in relation to climate change. So it's about creating space for emotion, but also thinking about emotion in more expansive terms. So, you know, we tend to think in terms of guilt, anxiety, grief, and those are obviously very powerful and legitimate emotions. But I think there's also a lot to be said for having um, a very expansive understanding of emotion and bringing things like playfulness, humor, laughter back in. Because let's face it, this is such an enormous crisis and we really have to think creatively about how to engage people with it. You know, going back to Wally, if you watch the movie with children, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old in a classroom, and they will most likely, you know, encounter various emotions selectively. And then the idea is that you then as a teacher would come back and actually work through the meaning and the uh, trying to process some of these emotions and relate it to climate change. That's sort of how this example would work in the classroom. Yeah, exactly. But also the question of, you know, I'm really taken with this question of what purpose do emotions serve? You know, so this this idea that emotions like reside within us and that they're very individual, they're very personal to me, I don't think is is an especially helpful one. So some of the, you know, more interesting recent literature around emotion talks about the circularity of emotions, how emotions do things, you know. Um, so it's more about emotion as an action rather than, you know, a, a quality that I possess, for example. And within the Irish language, the direct translation for emotion is, you know, uh, I have an emotion on me. So if I say Tall Brown Urum, that means there is sadness on me 
which I think is a really interesting way to think about it because it suggests that there's nothing inevitable or permanent about having difficult emotions, you know? So, and this is where the piece around agency comes in, you know, and, and being able to, I suppose, transcend you know, really challenging emotions through becoming, you know, involved in climate action through, you know, changing one's lifestyle and so on. So it's, it's the notion of individual agency and power to affect change, because really climate change education has to be transformative for it to be effective. It has to be transformative on multiple levels, you know. So, yeah, I like this idea that there's nothing permanent necessarily um, or inevitable about the emotions that that we will experience, you know, as we delve deeper into the climate crisis and our own, I suppose, implication in it. The idea that those emotions can be, you know, somehow transcended or transfigured and, and put to political and ethical use. Well, Audrey Bryan, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. Really a pleasure to talk today. And I love this idea of emotions being on me rather than in me. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure. Audrey Bryan is an associate professor at Dublin City University. Her new article, Pedagogy of the Implicated, was published in Pedagogy, Culture, and Society. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Octus, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afrobotan, Anya Lin, Phyllis Chaimunsa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.